Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's go back to 2011. Look at the World Cup with Squidge. Let's go back. Oh baby, let's go back with Squidge. Hello there. Uh, hello, hello. Uh, welcome to the very first Squid Rugby World Cup retrospective podcast, which is a bit of a mouthful. It is quite a long name. We were going to call it the SRWCR for short, but it turns out that copyright is taken by Sir Sharon's world class rhinoceros, so we can't have that. My name's Robbie Owen, though. If the man who once stopped me in Tesco while I was buying a meal deal and called me Squidge, he just shouted Squidge at me. If he if he can do that, if he can call me that, so can you. Feel free. Feel free. And joining me over there is. My name's Will Owen, and generally when people stop me in Tesco, they just call me Oi You, or Dickhead, or something like that. Yeah, they normally call me, that's not a sandwich, you can't eat it whilst you're in the shops, put it down, it's a mop. I can remember somebody shouting at you and calling you, why's your dick out as well? <laughs> hey, that me and Yo and Uje look a lot alike, that wasn't actually me. <laughs> I also just realised I've made a horrible first impression, having like really two was. dick jokes in the first minute and seven seconds of this. So, who are you? How do I know you? Why do I know you? You personally, or... Me just personally, random. yeah. Oh, okay. You personally, well, we originally met when you were about two years old, so I hear. Yeah. And yeah. apparently you said to me, hello, baby, I'm your brother. Which is really confusing, because we're not related. Yeah, I know. We do have the same surname. A same surname... We have the same parents, which is a real coincidence. Really? Yeah. You know, you know, you know, I don't know if you remember our dad, because, like, I barely do. But, yeah, he was the same guy, and our mum's the same. Like, we know that. Right. Yeah, I've just gone off the information you gave me when I was zero years old. Wait a minute. So we grew up in the same house, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want me to just disclose the address, just to... To be on the safe side? That's okay, that's okay. okay. We have the same parents, the same surname, and we look uncannily alike. Mm, some would say. It's not flattering to me. Why have I never... Oh no, mate, I feel the same way. <laughs> Why... Why have I never stopped to wonder if we might be related before? Well, evidently you did when you were two. Or maybe you were making... Was that a bit? It was a joke. Yeah, it was two. a bit. It was okay. a bit. Yeah, it was a good bit, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I wondered how long I can convince you that I'm your brother. Which is the exact inverse of the joke I was just doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point in this show that we're doing now is that each episode we are going to, as the name implies, we're going to work chronologically through every single game in a Rugby World Cup. Because a lot of people, when they look back on Rugby World Cups, they kind of go... Oh, we'll just look at the big games. Just look at the interesting games. Just look at the games where... Look at the final. Just look at South Africa beating Japan. Other way around, <laughs> South Africa beating Japan is not but anything. That's what we're going to do. Exactly. Although South Africa never beat Japan until 2019, so... No, exactly. But they haven't beaten them in a World Cup. They've beaten them two times out of three, which is disappointing. Yeah. 
So yeah, we're going to run through, the idea with this podcast is, every single match from a Rugby World Cup, chronologically, we're going to cover in just as much, well, in near enough as much detail, the games in which a minnow is thrashed, as the games in which there's a huge upset, as the big clashes between teams. Because I think that's the joy of a Rugby World Cup, is seeing all of these mismatches and seeing these players that you often don't see unless you're seeking them out between years. I've missed Romania, for instance, the last few years because we haven't seen them really on the big stage since 2015. I agree with this because this was really the first World Cup, the one that we're about to reveal which World Cup we'll start with. But this was yeah. really the first one we, where we were paying attention yeah. uh, at all, really, let alone beforehand. We were watching Minnows, one of which is playing in this match today, and mm. we are watching him sort of six months out and thinking about which players to look out for and stuff like that. That's yeah. something that is really enjoyable about a World Cup, yeah. is finding the Minnows exciting, fun players or kind of novelty players. And yeah, I think that's part of the fun of the World Cup. Yeah. So as I said, the idea with this podcast is we're going to try and put together the comprehensive idiot's guide to the entire history of the Rugby World Cup. Speaking as two idiots, we know this. Exactly, because we are the idiots in question. We're starting with 2011, which is not the obvious place to start. The obvious place to start is either 2019 or 1987, the first World Cup. But I think 2011 is a really interesting point. Firstly, because as you say, it was kind of the first World Cup where we watched every game, where we sat down and really committed to it and were proper rugby fans. Yeah. Like, I've got a few memories of 2007. I don't really. Uh, yeah, I remember watching one of Wales's games. Right. And I, I remember our father, if you remember him, losing his mind at the Fiji game. I remember him getting properly kicking off. like the And it being referred to the following day as like the Fiji incident. That being because no one could talk about it. And again, I've been told we listened to the 2003 World Cup final on the car radio. That's where we heard the Wilkins drop goal. There was a final in 2003? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, well, this is why we needed the podcast. We need to inform you that that competition finished. That's true. And of course, I was born during the 1995 Rugby World Cup. I was apparently, again, my parents are parents that we mutually have, watched Joan alone who scored those four tries against England whilst in hospital with really? me just I after I've been born. That. Yeah. Yeah. So I've known you all this time. I've known you for at least five years. Mm. And I never knew that fact about your birth. Yeah. I was born during the World, that World Cup. And I know our father watched John Lomo score those four tries with his newborn son on his knee. And he thought, hey, in a few years time, neither of these things will be important to me. Yeah. And that man grew up to be somebody who played briefly on the wing. For a couple of years. <laughs> but yeah, so I think the other interesting thing about 2011 is that from a rugby perspective, and because, you know, what I do for a living is basically analyse rugby and that, I think it's a really interesting tournament because it's kind of the furthest back you can go whilst rugby still looks the same as it does now. Because it's, it was kind of in a weird transition between what rugby was and what other people think of rugby as and what rugby was pre-professionalism to now where it's hyper-tactical and everything has a role and everything has a place and it's really complicated and uber-strategic. And I think 2011 is a really interesting turning point in that progression of rugby. Yeah, as you say, it's a really weird transitional phase because I feel like the rugby that we watch in 2011, mm. if that was played today at basically any level, that would be referred to as one at rugby. In yes. Commas. Yeah. Whereas back then, I, I don't know what one at rugby is. Like I'm so used to this sort of new, as you say, uber-tactical form of rugby. Yeah. Watching people just collide into each other and seeing, you know, front row forwards running from side to side of the pitch. Mm. That seems bizarre to me now. Yeah. And I think we'll get onto this when we move on to the first game, which we will do shortly. 
But it's really interesting because the role of everything has changed. And I think that's kind of what I want to look at because a lot of people ask me often, you know, can you do analysis of old games? And there isn't that much to analyse if you go back much further than 2015. You're kind of looking at, it's without sounding awful, the kind of thing that they do on a lot of main broadcasts because that level of analysis didn't exist when a lot of older players were playing. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of the analysis to be done on this sort of thing is mostly about set-piece moves, you know, stuff off first phase, that kind of thing, rather than the intricacies of entire game plan, for example. Mm. No, exactly, absolutely. And so that's where I think we want to go. We're going to begin with 2011. And so I just want to raise the point of where were we during the 2011 World Cup? What were we doing? We both lived in the same house. We did. We did, which is still weird. I still haven't got to the bottom of that. Yeah. I just started sick form. I was 16 years of age, which was great because it meant I wasn't in school 24-7. So if there was a game kicking off at half eight, sometimes I'd have a chance to go in and watch that or stay at home and watch that. There are games that I remember watching in the sick form, kind of on one of the computers in the sick form. Uh, South Africa, no, Scotland, Samoa. I remember watching Brian Habana's try as I was sat at a computer with people thinking I was working or something alongside. On the contrary, I was still in school. I would have been, if you were 16, I would have been probably 14. Yeah. But I clearly wasn't doing that well because I was prioritising watching every game in this World Cup. Hmm. So I can remember one day in particular where we'd both woken up at about 3am to go downstairs and watch those probably two or three games on. And I can remember specifically, it was Tonga against Canada, watching that in the morning and then going straight to school afterwards. So there were a lot of occasions like that. And I can remember talking about certain events from certain games as I got into school and being knackered at the end of the day because I'd been up for 12 hours by the time that school had finished because I was up watching, you know, Samoa against Namibia or something. Which was great. And I recognise we made a lot of people probably feel really old by talking about the fact that we were in school when this happened. But the opening game, the first game was between New Zealand, who were the host nation, and their near cousins, their their, their, their close friends, Tonga. So the game finished, and again, we'll move on to talking about this in detail, 41-10 to the All Blacks. The entire way through the commentary, because I think we both watched the ITV version of this, uh, Martin Gilliam, the main commentator, and instantly I've got a little bit about Martin Gilliam I want to come back to, but he kept talking about how the press wanted the All Blacks to score 50 points. And it was almost seen as an upset that they only won by 31. Yeah, it's safe to say that there was a lot of pressure on the All Blacks going to this World Cup. Mm. They hadn't won a World Cup since 1987, of course, the first World Cup. And this was their time returning to home. And this was like a huge chance for them because they'd been slaughtered so many times. I mean, 2007 going out to France in the quarterfinals. Yeah. That was, you know, unacceptable in the New Zealand press's eyes. So there was such a weight of expectation on the All Blacks at this point that, as you say, even not scoring a try in a five minute period against Tonga Mm. was seen as probably a disappointment. And the sheer level of that pressure was something I'd actually forgotten about. I'd actually forgotten how much pressure was on them. Because if they lost that World Cup, they would have been vilified across the board. Like, McCaw and Carter and so on are now regarded as all-time greats. But if they'd lost that World Cup at home, if they'd lost even that final against France, they wouldn't be. There'd be a fair chance that they'd be revered and looked at very differently. And maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves by talking about the final already. But I think it's a really interesting backdrop to just how much pressure New Zealand were under. Yeah, no, agreed. And that was a lot of the narrative for the entire All Black campaign, was mm. when are they going to crumble? And particularly as certain injuries, not looking at anybody in particular, <laughs> started to get them. Everyone was saying, is this it? New Zealand are going to blow it, aren't they? Yeah. You know, we're going to have to wait another four years. 
And because the competition was basically New Zealand's to lose, but not in the way it was in 2015, like it was New Zealand's to lose and everyone expected them to lose it. And it was a case of they're massive favourites, but they're going to choke somehow, kind of seemed to be the narrative surrounding the tournament. That was what everyone said, that they're the best team in the world by a margin, but they don't do well in World Cup. Yeah. So this opening game was between New Zealand and Tonga. To quickly look at the teams, the big call in the New Zealand team was they put Israel Dag, who at the time had free caps thereabouts. Yeah, he was very much the up-and-coming second choice, wasn't he? Yeah, he just played a handful of games in the Rugby Championship, won his first caps that year. and No, he won his first cap against Ireland previous year, sorry. Anyway, he was in his first few caps. He had more than three caps. He was yeah. Israel Dag was, was a young up-and-comer, but still very good. They'd put him in ahead of Mos Moyaina, who obviously 90-cap legend of All Black Rugby. They had Richard Kahui moved to the wing after a good game against South Africa in the Rugby Championship that year. And Conrad Smith was injured, so Marnonu and Sonny Bill, who had just come over to Union and just signed for a Super Rugby team that year in order to play in the World Cup, played in the centres. In the pack, Andrew Hall started over Mialamu. And then we had sort of dotted throughout. It was almost the All Black regulars. Victor Vito started his first game ever at number eight. But then it was with Kieran Reed injured. As you'd expect, McCaw, Carter, etc. Kano, Brad Fawn, Franks, Woodcock, the usual suspects. I can remember going into this game being quite relieved that first game of the World Cup, we're seeing, you know, the likes of McCaw and Carter playing, particularly mm. those two, to be fair, as the two sort of spearheads of this iconic New Zealand team yeah. having previously in the rugby championship scene because they'd started to question what if hypothetically Dan Carter human being gets mm. injured that would never because, happen like, that's a thing that could happen hypothetically that would never course, happen you know never happen and talking about who could potentially come in and take his place they'd experimented before with Aaron Cruden but at this point he wasn't really much of a kicker so mm. they'd sort of questioned that a bit and Colin Slade was the man that they'd brought in for the championship yeah. of course Slade ended up on the bench for this game but he played well in the rugby championship yeah. I feel and that was probably the general consensus but I feel like the New Zealand public weren't quite convinced that he would guide them to a World Cup if it was all on his shoulders no there was a lot of talk during Super Rugby of oh finally we've got a second 10 we've got someone just steady and solid because basically what they wanted and there was a lot of talk around this as well that they wanted Nick Williams to come back Nick Evans and there was a lot of people saying Nick sorry Nick Evans yeah they wanted to get a Nick Williams which is a weird choice <laughs> of 10, 10. <laughs> imagine he's got a mighty boot on him he would completely change that defensive midfield if you've got Nonu and Nick Williams as your 10 12. Yeah, there, there was a lot of talk of bringing Nick Evans back to play 10. What they could have done, on the other hand, is just call up Kurt Marath from the Tonga team. No, thank you. Who, at the time, was probably quite young. I, I haven't looked up how old he was, actually. I've made a point of not looking up how old he was because I can't fathom that he was ever younger than 34. Is He might be younger than 34 now, I don't know. He's 35 at the minute. Okay. Which means at the time, yeah, he was still like 26. Yeah, okay. To say he only had a handful of caps, he made his debut in 2009. Yeah. But to be fair, our impression beforehand of Marath was probably pretty good looking at the warm games. Okay, so my thing about Kurt Marath is that he is possibly the most, next to Jimmy Gopuff, the most Kiwi 10 I've ever seen. Because he just makes sensible decisions. And then Nothing moves else. on. He doesn't do anything else. There's no flash to his game. He just makes sensible decisions and gets on with it. Yeah. In some ways, if he came through now, he'd probably be a 12. Hmm, maybe. Although the idea of Kurt Marath at 12 is something which makes me shiver a little bit. And it's funny I should mention that because that happened in this game. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, so the Tonga team, to run through it quickly, we had Vungalilo at fullback, who is a 
absolute favourite of mine. Yeah, great. I love Vungalilo. He is an all-time great fat fullback. Speaking of fat players, we had Tanya Lamora at nine, who I think we'll have to come back to. Yes, we will. We had a few real other notables. We had Sally Pietau playing on the wing, yeah. normally a centre. Suka Hufanga, of course, playing outside centre with Pietau on the wing. Yes. Which eventually they swapped due to the form of both players. Hufanga was a good player was a good as well. Player. I'd kind of forgotten yeah. about him. We had in the front row Litui, a hooker, who was at Worcester at the time. Then Tongawe, who was in the form of his life in Northampton that season. Yeah, he's got a shed load of tries. Yeah, he was the top try scorer in the Premiership, like halfway through. Yeah, he was up there, yeah. And the boy himself, Tao Felice yeah. of the Blues. That's a monster front row, isn't it? It really is. That's the thing that strikes me most about this Tonga team, mm. is that up front, they are huge, and they're all pretty big-name players. Yeah. Of course, on the bench, they went for a 5-2 split. So yeah. they had Tokafa, Tamalolo, and Pulu as their replacement front row. At this point, of course, you only traditionally would have one prop on the bench. But yeah. They went for a fully loaded front row on the bench, and that's monstrous. And we might as well move on to the game now, because that really paid off for them in the way it paid off for the Springboks in the most recent World Cup. Because that last 20, they were monstering the All Blacks scrum. Every scrum, they were nailing them 10, 15 metres backwards. I don't so much think it was the fact that they were inherently better scrummagers. They were very, very good scrummagers. But they were playing against properly like 50-cap world-class All Blacks. But you had to, at that time, keep one of your props on for 80. Yeah, absolutely. And that made a huge difference when they were bringing on a full, fresh front row. Because they had... Their six best players, pretty much, were their six front rowers. Yeah, they were. And either side of that scrum, you've got Tamalolo, who doesn't really need much of an introduction, you know. No. After this, he went on to become a heroic player for the Chiefs. And Kisipulu, who was second fiddle, really, to Nicola Mass and the Perpignan mm. team. But he was still, like, a pretty well-established top 14 player at this point. And yeah. so those two are monstrous players to bring on. And it's definitely a risk worth taking, having three front rowers on the bench and sacrificing, you know, a fullback or whatever you'd have on the outside backs. And at the time, that was the done thing, was kind of the cheat code in the way now, if you want to strengthen your scrum, you sign a Georgian, <laughs> and that is the cheat code, the way around it. At the time, you sign a Tongan. Mm. You just brought in a random Tongan, because they're all massive and love scrummaging. As I mean, we see in that France game later on, Tamalolo whooping and cheering and France call a scrum on a five-meter yeah. penalty. There is another very similar point in this game as well, mm. towards the end, when Tonga start getting scrum penalties. As soon as the referee's yeah. bonus whistle, Tamalolo gets up and says to the referee, we'll have another scrum, please, before his captain can get involved. <laughs> and it's the first thing on his mind. It's like, I want another go at this, this Frank character. So for anyone who doesn't remember... And I recognise that most of you, I'd go to almost none of you will have watched this game back in order to do so. I say it was a comprehensive All Blacks win. They were on top pretty much the whole way. They scored a penalty early on and then they kind of, Israel Dag scored about 10 minutes in. Yeah. And from there on out, it was kind of one-way traffic. Yeah. Other than this one period, about sort of, what was it, like the 55, no, 60-odd minute mark, where Tonga just brought on... Sona Taumalolo, their replacement loose head prop, who I remember at the time I'd never heard of. I had no idea who this guy Me was. Me too, yeah. They brought off Tongawea, who was their best player, yeah. their star player, as I said, been in phenomenal form for Northampton. And they brought on Tawalolo. And a few minutes later, he up the tail, Dan Carter takes the ball, and Tawalolo just absolutely barrels into him, smashes him. Carter drops the ball behind him. Tawalolo just grabs it and charges on for about 20 metres into the 22. It's genuinely one of the best and funniest moments in a rope match I've ever seen. Yeah. I remember us howling oh, watching that live. Yeah. I'm ready to do a deep dive on Tamalolo now and get that out of the way. Yeah, because yeah, go. Obviously, 
the All Blacks went in 29-3 up at half-time, which we mm. probably felt flattered Tonga a little bit because yeah. their defence was really poor. And obviously, I think this change of the front row was probably the turning point, as you were saying. Because yeah. at that point, Tamalolo manhandles, uh, I think it was Owen Franks still on the tight head side at that point, manhandles mm. him in the scrum, gets the All Black on the back foot, and then second phase smashes Dan Carter, as you say, gets the ball, trundles upfield. And you think about, if they'd left on their normal loose head prop, Tonga Weir, who'd been playing really well actually, and had charged around the pitch yeah. like a madman all game. Uh, so there's a, sorry, just just to interrupt there. Just to, yeah. there's a moment in the game where the All Blacks are on the, the Tongan try line, like they've got a line out about ten meters out, and they play it wide, and then Tonga Weir works really hard to get round and win a turnover, win a penalty on the line. It's a brilliant piece of work by a loose head prop. It's like proper Geffen Jenkins at his best level yeah. of a loose head getting over the ball. And then at that moment, Andy Gomezel on commentary says, well, the big difference between these two teams is that the All Blacks forwards are just working that much harder to get around the corner and get up for rucks. I was like, well, did you just see that? Like it a loose head prop just yeah. sprinted the width of the pitch and turned the ball over. Yeah. He was like, Tongawee was such a well-rounded player. Oh, he was. Anyway, let's go back to the, yeah, the, the no, praising Tamalolo, yeah. the glorious pebble. Yeah, but to be fair, I was going to say, yeah, Tonga Weir and Lutui both worked really, really hard in the, yeah. that game for the period the weather were on. And Felice was lovely. And clearly just emptied the tank. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Felice was there for his good looks. But so those can two... I, just on the note of Tal Felice, who is a glorious, glorious man. Yeah. And as you say, one of the best looking men I've ever seen. Yeah. Like I went off on one in that Invictus video about Scott Eastwood, <laughs> but Tal Felice makes him look like nothing. Can I give you Tal Felice's stats for this game? Please do. Okay. Actually, I want you to guess them. Okay. How many passes do you think Tal Felice made? Zero. Nope. He made one. One. Okay. How many carries do you think Tal Felice made? One. He made one. How many meters did Tal Felice make with the ball in hand? Ninety-four. <laughs> Can you imagine yes, that clean break? I have seen Felice play before. Yeah. He made one metre. How many tackles do you think Felice made? Three. One. One. He made one metre, one pass, one game. carry, and one tackle. Well, he's consistent, he's balanced. Yeah. No missed tackles, mind, so that's fine. Yeah. But no, he's a great player, Felice, of yeah. course, and we love him. And he did, from what I can remember, actually play quite well. Even yeah. if those stats say that he did one of everything. So, yeah, good on him. All power to him. So, yeah, Tamalolo, obviously, scored. And we're just going to talk about Tonga's try, I think. Yeah. Because the All Blacks only scored, what, like a bunch of their own? We don't yeah. care. I don't care about that. I don't care about their six tries. Because there's that one, Tamalolo takes the ball off Carter. And there's something great about the fact that it's Dan Carter. Yeah. It's the big star man of world rugby at the time. And possibly of all time, who he smashes and then runs downfield. And there's this kind of real panic about it. And there's something as well, like nowadays you'd look at that passage of play because Tonga then just keep the ball and they pick and go and pick and go and pick and go. They pick and go for I think it's like 22 phases. Several phases. And they get a penalty on the five metre line. They go for a series of scrums. They drive the All Blacks backwards, backwards, backwards until the ball comes out of one where the All Blacks scrum's quite solid. They pick and go, pick and go, pick and go. And eventually Tamalo the scores yeah. from a pick and go. Now, I began trying to add it up. On the first set, he carries six times. I also counted in this. that first between him taking the ball I off got Carter. Five, but they're all positive carries. That's what I got. You're right. I just read my I read my numbers wrong. It says five. Yeah, he carried five times. Then he seemed to carry three times in the second phase and two in the third. Yes, that's what I got as well. So <laughs> Tamalolo makes ten carries in the space of about five minutes. All positive as well. Yeah, like that's absurd numbers. Yeah. 
Loose head prop. And the other great thing is ESPN stats, he clearly broke them because Alyssa's having zero on everything apart from try has scored. Oh, okay. So clearly Felice did actually make a load of carries and it's just ESPN are wrong. Yeah. But nowadays you'd call that great work rate. But really, I just think he was excited. I think he was, yeah. I think he was a little kid at Christmas, wasn't he? Yeah. He was like, wait a minute. I get a smash into the All Blacks. Yeah. I get a scrummage against Tony Woodcock. I feel like there was a bit of self-awareness when he smashed Carter, picks the ball up, kind of looks around like, yeah, that's Dan Carter. <laughs> but he was... I've rarely seen a player look like he's having a great time as much yeah. as Tamalolo did the whole World Cup. Oh, absolutely. And that's kind of why I came to love him. As you say, he became a... He became a hero and he was fantastic when the Chiefs won Super Rugby. Yeah. But really, I'll always think of him for that World Cup when he was having... He was just so exuberant as a player. He was just having this amazing time smashing everything. Yeah. And like when he was making tight carries from pick and goes, it was just... He was having such a great time. He was loving the fact he was running into Jerome Kano. Oh, yeah. No, what a guy. Do you have any points you want to move on to? Yeah, so we'll talk about some of the New Zealand line breaks now and the tries that you know came as a result of because, you know, I think particularly in the first half, they scored a lot of tries where there were weak tackles coming in, which were generally quite well exploited by Sonny Bill in particular and Israel Dagg as well with their offloading game. It's just if you don't get a dominant tackle on them, they will Mm. get their arms free. I feel like Kahui scored two tries off the basis of that alone. Yeah. And also Kahui's try, or the try he made for Jerome Kaino as well. Yeah. Which is lovely. For, he, he puts in a lovely little chip, which is regathered by Kahui himself, and then he offloads it in field to Kaino, who's tracking across. And it's a really lovely bit of support work. Yeah, it is. Because you've got both him and, I think it's Victor Vito, it might be Avni Barik tracking, there's another one of the back rowers, both tracking across and support. Yeah. And there's a lot of that kind of, as I say, it's a weird transition point in rugby, because it goes from... Nowadays, I don't think both of them would be in that position. No. I think one of them would be following in behind to clear out. Yeah. And one of them would be keeping that width if it's a good, well-drilled team like New Zealand. Yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On that try as well, another point about Martin Gillingham. Mm. On the commentary, he says something along the lines of, okay, who he doesn't necessarily know there's anyone inside in there. He's not looking. It's like, hang on, Kano can speak. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, uh, on the Martin Gillingham point, okay, my thing with Martin Gillingham is, Martin Gillingham, pride of Nottingham, who stands next to, I think, us and Tom Youngs as... Nottingham people in rugby. Yeah. People raised in Nottingham. I guess so. So, I decided to keep a tally 
of how many times in commentary Martin Gilliam used the word Nottingham, knots, anything of that sort. Right. To date, from just one game, four times. That's a lot. The match was between Tonga and New Zealand, <laughs> and he managed to mention Nottingham four times. Clearly, Sione Calamaphoni was really involved. And the other thing I'd forgotten this was that All Black second row legend, Arlo Williams, yes. played half a season for Nottingham. He did. Which was bizarre. Not long before this World Cup as well. Yeah. There's a great moment as well. So the All Blacks make this brilliant break and they do all of this rugby and blah, 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 blah. And then Nonu does this fantastic kind of flick pass to put Sonny Bill through. And it's kind of, it's a two-on-one and Sonny Bill ends up going himself. And initially when I was watching it, I thought, that's oh, really greedy. And I probably thought that at the time. And I went back and checked and Arlo Williams just stood like a yard in front of him. Oh, there's somewhere else I thought you might have been going with that, which mm. was a similar break where Sonny Bill kind of streaks down the left wing. And yes. puts in a really well-timed kick for Richard Kahui. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... Well, Kahui's in for all... Was it Toyava, sorry? Toyava. Um, yeah, you think he's in for all money. And he starts slowing his feet down. And you think, oh, why is he about to step somebody? Maybe, you know, just for style points or whatever. And then some unidentified Tongan fatty just comes in and absolutely nails him. Yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. This was just at the start of the second half as well. When the first half started with them stopping a try when Lilo puts in a really good shot on Kano. They turn mm. the ball over, try to exit off a quick throw, and the All Blacks score basically straight away. And then in the second half, they stop when they stop basically two certain tries. Yes. Sorry, that, that quick throw. Now, I'd completely forgotten this. Yeah. So the first try of that World Cup comes from Tonga stopped. Like, there's a really good All Blacks move, but they managed to put them into touch. And Tonga take a quick throw to, and I think we're going to have to hover on this guy in a moment, Taniela Moa, the Tongan scrum half. Yeah. Now, I don't know if people remember Taniela Moa, the Tongan scrum half, but... He was he was a boy and a half, almost literally, because he was the size of a boy who got halfway through eating another boy and it was still <laughs> showing up in his tummy. Like he was a chunk. He was like I don't know if people have played rugby twenty, but like Thomas Williams and there's a yes. few scrum halves are inexplicably really fat. And actually Daniel Moa just looks like one of those. But he doesn't the thing is, he he wasn't like Ricky January, who looked like a scrum half who just had a few too many mince pies. Yeah. Or like, he you know, when Piri Weepu went to London Welsh oh, yeah. and just ate everything at the local pizza hut. Whereas, he, you know, he was on that massive contract and he spent it all at Domino's. Yeah. Taniela Moa was built like a hooker. Yeah, no, he was a scary size. And the best thing is, they moved him to 10 for the last quarter of the game. Yep, and they started him there in the next Tonga game. Yeah. Which is bizarre. And because when they moved him to 10, he, all his passes, he kind of like flings the ball. Yeah. Like he properly winds them up and kind of releases them. He's like, he's got a dial on his back and he has to turn him up before he passes it. It's a very strange player to watch. Yeah. By the way, anybody listening, if you want to send in your submissions for the Fat Scrum Half League, then <laughs> please feel free. Ricky January, I think, is, remains maybe yeah, my he's, favourite. he's king, isn't he? But yeah, Tanya Lamoa is fascinating to watch because he is so bizarre. And there's like, a weird haircut. Yeah, oh yeah. There seemed to be moments in which he would, as I say, he's a chunky scrum off. But there were times he would make breaks and he clearly, before he gets the ball each time, would define whether he's going to make a break or not. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's two to the points in the game where he makes a break and then there's a third where there's a massive gap in front of him and he spends the whole time kind of looking to pass around. Oh yeah, He's looking left, looking right and he's like... 
do I have to go through that gap? I'm knackered. There's a hilarious moment that it's probably about 10, 15 minutes into the second half when it's second phase off a line out. And at this point, it was acceptable for other than, you know, your Matt Proudfoot moments, for the entire pack to just loop round after the line-out and then just stand there as if they're going to carry. Yeah. I'm sure you will notice this moment as well. Moa then proceeds to... They've all come round onto his right-hand side. Moa then proceeds to pick the ball up, takes two steps to his left, where there is just his left winger, yes. who would have been Peter, stood all the way out on the touchline, and he doesn't realise there's nobody else there, and he just kind of looks up like, oh... Okay, and then steps back right, sees his entire yeah. pack stood there ready to carry the ball, all looking to my... Why on earth do you think there's space on that side? It's hilarious. It's just mower being mower. It's not like that thing that like the 2003 England team used to do, where they kind of spread everyone out and keep the... It's like, he picks and goes expecting there to be someone. Yeah. And he kind of, there's a moment in which it flashes through his head that... Wait a second, I could throw the pass. Yeah. And he clearly is weighing up just throwing this 20 metre pass. Then he has the moment of realisation that taking two steps to the blind side doesn't mean the commentator's going to say, oh, that's clever play by Moa. Yeah. There's a difference. And he's properly, like, pretty much in the middle of the field. Yeah. Like, he's got, as I say, it's a 20, 30 metre mispass. He's having to. It's not even a mispass, there's no one he's missing. <laughs> yeah. It's a 20 odd metre pass. And it is so bizarre, that thing about the forwards working all the way around as well. Like, I watched a little bit of the halftime analysis when I was kind of skimming through it. Right. And I watched the full game, but I skimmed through the, the halftime yeah. stuff. And there's a moment in which Lawrence Delalio was saying, well, the Tongan pack's been very slow coming around the corner. And that was a thing people used to say. Yeah. I was thinking about, do you remember when people used to talk about Scrum Half's, like, speed of service? Yeah. Remember when that was a thing that people talked about? Well, that was the thing with Jimmy Cowan. Was Jimmy Cowan oh, was yeah. first choice English, um, all black Scrum Half coming into this game. And then the narrative was he shits the bed, Perry Reaper comes in, and Andy Ellis comes in on the bench. Yeah. And he drops out the team completely. I didn't think he was as bad as I remembered. No, he wasn't that bad. But I think because the scrum half's job is both exactly the same and it's changed enormously. It's weird, isn't it? Because I feel like their role hasn't changed with the scrum half. Because, no. you know, you don't need to assign them a role because it's the job description, really. Yeah, it's the one position that will always be the same. But Jimmy Cowan, Jimmy Cowan confused me because all the time he would take two steps from the ruck, sort mm. of hoping a gap would appear. And nine times out of ten, he would get somebody, you know, tickling his ribs. Yeah. And it was just one of those things, like, you're potentially risking the entire tempo of your attack by taking those steps. That was kind of the fashion at the time, though, wasn't it? It was the thing Mike, Mike Phillips, Phillips get, kind yeah. of brought in. Exactly. And then Colin Fottowilly did it really effectively, yes, kind of did. in the year following this, of a scrum off, kind of keeping the fringes honest, was the phrase, that you would pick and go as the scrum off, and he would then offload. Yeah. And it was a tag that was really useful in the Rugby World Cup 2011 video game as well. I do it all the time with forwards. Which we still play every time we see each other. Regularly. Very regularly. And yeah, Cowan tried to do that. And actually, Weepu came on. And it wasn't so much that he was an improvement as he just didn't do that. Yeah. And he played rugby in the way it was going to be played in the next few years. Even though, as I say, the role was exactly the same. But there was this one other thing that Cowan did a few times. There was a thing Ireland under Joe Schmidt did a lot. Wherein Connor Murray would send this like massive miss free ball to a centre crashing it in. Yes, yeah. And he'd skip all the forwards. And Cowan did that twice. He threw a long wide ball to Sonny Bill or Marmanu. Yeah. And I'd kind of forgotten that that existed before Joe Schmidt. Before yeah. Joe Schmidt and Connor Murray and Robbie Henshaw and Bundy Aki. There's a funny point on this actually that I find really hilarious. Mm. Is that another thing that's slightly ahead of its time is obviously the standard shape now of a forward stood in a sort of head position forward on his tip on line and typically yeah. you fly half out the back calling it the all blacks ran this 
about 20 minutes into the game. Mm. Carter calls it out the back and gives the ball to Sonny Bill, who dives in the corner. And the referee calls it back for crossing. Yes. Because Richie McCaw has run the most normal tip-on line, which is just completely the norm today. And it's not like, you know, because sometimes you do see people overrunning the tip line and getting done for crossing. Mm. One of my mates got Simbin for that once, which is quite funny. But, you know, he doesn't overrun the line or anything. He's still completely in line. He doesn't make any contact. Finale Macca just buys it, tackles McCaw and gets the penalty for it. And that was hilarious, I thought. That's really interesting. He just ran a normal tip-on line and got penalised. Because at what point does that change? At what point mm. do teams stop penalising that? Do teams go, or do referees rather, start going, actually, that's fine? Because it is fine. It's you know, the norm. It's the, yeah. Exactly. Macca makes a decision to tackle McCall rather than to tackle Carter or Sonny Bell. Yeah. And there's a similar thing as well. There was a moment in which, and it, it genuinely quite confused me, because the All Blacks played that standard shape that, like, it's the shape that Scotland and Wales have started running the Six Nations and kind of a lot of teams who are doing something slightly innovative but not completely innovative do, uh, which is that the 10 plays into a pod of three who then kind of pass between themselves. Yeah. And there's a moment which the All Blacks do that and Carter passes it on to the forwards. And I think it was one of the second rows, Williams or Fawn, or maybe Whitelock was on by now. And if he tipped it on out the back, there was a clean break on. Like the yeah. All Blacks had like a four on two. And it really confused me that it didn't flash through their heads. Yeah. Because... The beginnings of the structure there with New Zealand, the beginnings of modern rugby structure are there in the All Blacks team. And I don't think they will be. They weren't there with Tonga at all. No. And I don't think they will be with a lot of the other teams. We may see other teams who get the knockout stages and the teams that made the knockout stages. But the All Blacks had the beginnings of it, but the players weren't actually good enough to do it or they weren't aware enough. And those forwards, those All Blacks forwards all have the skill set and their skills were way beyond anyone else. And that genuinely impressed me again. Again, if you compare this to 2015, it's probably largely the same team. And yeah. yet the skill set would look so much more advanced because they're actually being asked more. Yeah. Yeah, they're just their awareness was so much better. And that, yeah. there's a couple of moments as well. Tonga arrived from the first kickoff and they did it again on another kickoff later on. They sent <laughs> literally their entire team were on one side of Marath when he kicks off. <laughs> and they all charged down. And I did think like the twenty fifteen New Zealand team would have scored in the first minute. Yeah. Because they would have whipped it out. But instead of the all blacks in twenty eleven formed them all and they made some ground and they did perfectly fine. But you fast forward a couple of years and they're going, wait a second, there's literally no one over there. Let's just pass the ball and kick it to our winger on the left-hand side, yeah. Exactly. You get it out as quickly as possible. And you've got the fact that, yes, Yongi was probably the quickest player on the pitch. And Yongi was a great player. We didn't get to see much but of him But he couldn't tackle. But No, but he was great. He was and rapid. he really struggled against Kahui. Yeah. Whichever one's playing on the left, Toyava. Toyava, yeah. <laughs> Richard Kahui as well. Right. I realised as I was watching him, I'd completely forgotten his face. I could give you stats about his career. I could talk you through him as a player, but I completely forgotten his face. And I couldn't remember why that was until I looked at it again until there was another close-up of him because I would have walked past him in the street yesterday, despite the fact if you'd said to me, tell me about Richard Kahui, I could have given you detailed statistics on his career and how many tries he scored and, and so on. And, of course, all his details of his part in The Kick. Yes. The film about Steve yes. Donald. Yes, in which he plays like the Reese Ethan's from Notting Hill role. Yeah, so... I then looked at his face in the second close-up of him, I think after his second try or after he'd done something, and I realised it's because he's got like a proper, like the default computer-generated face in a video game. Like when you come to the player select thing and you're going to customise your face, his face is the default one you come to (laughs) at the beginning before you customise it at all, before you change the haircut, before you change the face, anything. He's got one of the most... And this isn't a criticism. This isn't anything personal about him. He's got one of the most wonderfully generic faces I've ever seen. It's great. Is that a compl- that's a compliment, right? 
I think so. I think so. Well, if yeah. the idea is the most attractive people are the most standard, the most average, mm, I guess so. if you had to do like that, if you add up 100 people, it kind of makes the most attractive face because it kind of yeah. averages it all out. Fair. Therefore, Richard Cahoo is the most attractive man in the world besides Tau Felice and Scott Eastwood. We're yeah. building quite a long list here. And Tommy Bow, of course. Of course. Tommy Bow tops the top of everything positive. Yes. And just on that All Blacks backline, though, on beyond Richard Cahoo who was one of those weird players who probably won't be remembered that well and kind of isn't being. People aren't talking about him and I forgot his face. But he was just on the form of his life during that tournament. Yeah, he's going to be that player when you start filling out the sporkle form of every player to ever have won a Rugby World Cup. <laughs> you know, in 20 years, people will see the left wing for New Zealand and go, Richard Kahui? I don't know who that is. Yeah. Richard Kahui? More like... <laughs> Oh, it's a joke. An actual joke. Oh. A bit like Milner Scudder, though. Milner Scudder came in, had the him a form joke? of his life for one year, won the World Cup, and scored the try in the final, and then, bam, no, disappeared. You know, won a handful more caps after that. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's a weird anomaly, isn't it? If you're a Kiwi winger, you can do that. You can just come in, win a World Cup, and then piss off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that all backs back line. Like, okay, I had a thought while I was watching this. And this is complete hyperbole, and it's maybe just because I watched the game today. But A, if you had Dan Carter and Marnonu in your midfield, you could put literally anyone in there and it'd be balanced. Yeah. Like, you could put Tanya Lamoa in that midfield and it'd be balanced. Oh, could you imagine? You could put, like, who's the most inappropriate back you could put in that midfield? Um... I genuinely think you could put any back in the history. Of, you could put Russ Abbott in that midfield and it'll be That'd balanced. Be you could, people have never picked up a rugby ball. You could put a penguin in there and it'd be a balanced midfield. Like the two of them are so well-rounded and they cover everything you could possibly ever want from a midfielder that suddenly Bill coming in and just offloading and just kind of being a bit of a show pony, which he was at the time. Like he really ran out his game in the year afterwards, but he was a, he had a couple of tricks and he did them very well. And that was kind of who he was. Your Black Reserve Centre Partnership. Yeah. <laughs> they had Conrad Smith to come in as well, who is one of my all-time favourite players. Like, yeah. I love Conrad Smith. I have a signed Conrad Smith All Black jersey on my wall. There's a fun fact. You do, and I didn't need you to bring that up because Sorry. I am now jealous again. Thank you. It's fine. You have a Uruguay shirt signed by the entire 2019 squad, so I think that's I know. a little bit better. I am so proud of my country. So, Marnonu as well. He's so good. Hot take, but yes. Marnonu, good player. Do you want an actual hot take? Go on. I had a throwaway thought during watching him in this game. And this isn't a fully formed Marnonu. Like, he isn't as good as he was by 2015. No. Because by 2015, he could kick as well. Yeah. Like, he filled in at 10 for the All Blacks in that uncapped game yeah. in the lead-up. The length of his passing improved as well by 2015. So, if you watch Nonu here, the timing on his passing is sublime. It's, like, perfect. It's incredible, isn't the it? The timing on his passing is as good as any player I've ever seen. He's also, next to Jamie Roberts, he was the most effective crash ball centre in the world. Like, he was properly crash-bang wallop, got you over the game line every single time. He's pretty quick for his size. He's rapid for his size. The thing that improves is the quality of his passing isn't that great at this point. Like, he's kind of lobbing the ball and yeah. he's timing it well, but it isn't crisp. By 2015, he is the best quality passer yeah. that you can find as well. And he becomes, like, we, we both stand by this, we've both had this conversation before, that he is the best 12 of all time. He's the yeah, best centre I've ever seen. And I don't have any doubt over that. No, me neither. And I had a moment watching him, like, I think he's amongst the top 10 rugby players I've ever seen. I think he's right up there as one of the best backs. One of them, And he kind of has that Geffen Jenkins thing. of like, there's, I've got a theory that Geffen Jenkins might be the best player of all time. Because... 
he could kick better than any other than Dan Carter or Barry John or Gareth Edwards, whoever could scrummage. Okay, I thought you were saying. I mean, somebody could really easily take that out of context. The clip of you saying Gethin Jenkins could kick better than Dan Carter. <laughs> Gethin Jenkins would say that himself. Though that's true. That's true. Tens are useless. <laughs> and again, there's plenty of glorious Gethin moments to come up in the rest of this World Cup. But Nonu was one of the most complete players I've ever seen. He is amongst the best players yeah. I've ever seen. And every time I watch him, I'm kind of just overawed by the fact that that can happen again. Yeah, that try that he scored a couple minutes left in this game, yes. where he made the original break, oh, fed inside, yeah. then loops back round. And he made that look so simple. Yeah, that's such yeah. a difficult thing to do, you know, to, to have the awareness to spot the space after you've made the break and made the pass. You know, to do all of that within five seconds is such The a, fact that he's able to kind of to take the hit from Vangalilo and still stay alive yes. and loop round. yeah. It's incredible. There's another moment as well. It's a tiny moment. After that, you mentioned the Sunny Bill kick that Toyava chases, which is lovely. Yeah. He offloads to Nonu, who's running a superb support line. Yeah. Nonu is then tackled. He then releases the ball, gets briefly back up to his feet and offloads it. Yeah. And it's kind of this tiny moment of just knowing the laws and being brilliant. And I recognise that there's a fair chance I may bang on about Nonu quite a lot over the course of this tournament. Oh yeah, there's more games in this tournament. There's okay. more games. There's 47 and New Zealand more. play in a lot of them. New Zealand play in a bunch. They play in as many as anyone does. They play in eight games. Was it seven games? I don't know. They play in like more than four. Because that's how many you need to do in a big old pool stage. The The other thing I want to very quickly mention is that having, as I said, watched a bit of the pre and post and halftime game, there's a certain joy in seeing adverts from 2011 again. Oh, hit me. I didn't watch these. So, I don't know if you remember the DHL adverts that they played all the time with Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Oh yeah, I remember that. That was pretty good. That was pretty great. There was the there was a San Miguel advert that I saw a lot because it played all the time during the Rugby World Cup here. It used to play all the time in cinemas. This was when I first started to go to the cinema a lot. Right. And so I was turning up early. I didn't know exactly when to turn up to skip all the adverts and trailers. Yeah. So it's just kind of... This bottle of San Miguel describing all the people it's met and all the lips it's touched. And at the end it goes, Hola, monsieur. Or it's Italian. So it says, what? Yeah. Hello. In, but in Italian. Buongiorno. Uh, and then he says, It doesn't say buongiorno. It must say just a hello. So, <laughs> hello, monsieur. Nice beard. And it talks about, like, I've met party girls. I've dived off the rocks of so and so. I've met this person. I've met that person. As though it's real. And not an inanimate object. That was what flew in 2011. Yeah. The presentation, very two-door cinema club heavy as well. Oh, of course. Yeah, I remember this. ITV's coverage. that at the end of half-time segments yeah. and stuff. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 etc. Over every shot at the table, over any headlines when they say, Oh, now Courtney Laws has been banned for free games. Or when they said, next we'll be looking at whether Dan Carter should still be in the All Blacks team or whatever. And also, right, the ITV's coverage was hosted by Steve Ryder. Oh my God, yeah. Who I only know because he's mentioned in Alan Partridge's book. <laughs> like he's mentioned in I, Partridge as someone that Alan Partridge used to go for drinks with, I think. That's brilliant. Are there any other pundits from the 2011 World Cup that were mentioned in Alan Partridge's book? No, that was it. Okay. Disappointingly. There's no yeah. nod to Ignacio Mieres or anything like that. Oh, there is actually. There's a big segment oh, where he there? talks about Ignacio Moneris. Yeah. yeah. He moved to Norwich after his time at the Chiefs. <laughs> <Did> yeah. <he>? yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he took at the midnight slot on North Norfolk Digital. <laughs> Could you imagine North Norfolk Nights with Nathia Mieres? <laughs> hey, hello. It is I, Ignacio. It is 2 a.m. <laughs> and this is the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> yeah. Here to get your kicks with me, Ignacio <laughs> Because like he it. was a big kicking player. He's going to drop a great new track. Because he used to drop goals. Oh. I don't know if anyone remembers Ignacio Mieres. He was a really solid, just like... He was like an Argentine Dan Parks, but he was sort of wiry. Yeah, and he only got like 15 caps, didn't he? That's a guess. Imagine if Dan Parks was kind of like a tall, wireframe Italian man. Argentine man, rather. And just kind of had like... How would you describe his hair? Because uh... it was sort of oily. I don't know. It was like weird. It was like you know in Mario Kart when the squid bursts ink on you and you can't see properly. It was like someone did that on his head and he just kept it as hair, <laughs> like it didn't fade off after a few seconds. That's a very good analogy. That's impressive. So is Ignacio Mieres now a playable character in Mario Kart? Is that canon as well? Now? Yes. Yes, it is. He's DLC. Yeah, with Steve Ryder. Yeah, get it because he. Yeah, yeah. Steve Steve Ryder. All my friends know Steve Ryder. Nice. I don't know why we're talking about Ignacio Mieres. We are going massively off track <laughs> we've, here. We've gone massively off track. Do you have any more thoughts on New Zealand v Tonga? The opening game oh, of yeah, 2011 Rugby World Cup. That was the idea, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, not really. No? Okay. Well, on that note, so I think that good brings us to a close on our first episode covering the first match of the 2011 World Cup on the Squidge Rugby World Cup Rugby Retrospective Rug of Rugby Rug Sir Sharonan's World Class Rhinoceros. And therefore, I think it's time for us to throw to our one regular segment, which is after reviewing and rewatching this match from the 2011 World Cup, we want to, in the traditions of amateur rugby, decide both our own personal man of the match. And our own personal dick of the day. So, I want to throw to you first. Who was your man of the match? My man of the match, I had originally two names written down. Mm-hmm. And basically my idea was to decide on the spot. I had written down Sona Tamalolo and Jerome Kano. Mm-hmm. Tamalolo for his immense impact off the bench for the losing side, I very much recognise. Yes. So, instead, I think I'm going to pick Jerome Kano, who was all around the pit. He was everywhere, starting a lot of attacks and hitting yeah. everything, not letting Tonga get going. Again, I think... Fittest bear in the park. I think Taumalolo is the the obvious standout for Tonga, even though he yeah. came on and he only played sort of 25 minutes. I thought he was brilliant in the 25 minutes he did play and it was such a joy. But for me, the man of the match was, and I banged on about enough, but Mananu I thought was superb. Fair enough. And just unlocked everything around him. Whenever the All Blacks got going, it's because Nanu got some time. And he didn't always need time. He could make time because he was massive. Only because Kano made the time for him. Let's not have this argument. Let's move on yeah. to the much-covered category of dick of the day. So just to sort of clarify, the semantics of the word dick. Are yes. Basically, what we're doing here is this is a third-team rugby tradition, a very amateur rugby tradition anyway. And effectively, the dick of the day is given to somebody who does a moment of sort of tremendous stupidity at some point in the game, hmm. such as, you know, dropping the ball over the try line. I remember I once got it for trying to kick the ball out for half time and missing touch and the opposition nearly scoring. 
So it's that sort of a moment. So I've got, again, two two names written down here. Mm. One of them is, I have Kahui written down, but it turns out it was Toei Arva for not finishing that chance where he got smashed by yeah. some random big Tongan lad. However, I'm going to go for, instead, Tanya Lamoa for two reasons. Okay. The first of which is his haircut. Fair enough. The second of which is ignoring that massive pack of his yes. that was stood on his right-hand side. <laughs> yeah, so he's my dick. Missing them completely and looking yeah. over too. Okay. Uh, now, my dick of the day I'm going to go for is good old Dan Carter's designated driver, Ali Williams. So, not only was he finally back from being banned for doing a bunch of cocaine in Paris, but he, and from injuries and, you know, that as well. Going to Nottingham and... Exactly. Going Which anyone... Somebody I know, funny enough. There's a name oh. drop. Anyone should be banned for going to Nottingham. Yes. If you're not... <laughs> Eat that Martin Gilligan. <laughs> and me, who was born in Nottingham. Yeah. But okay, there's a moment I already mentioned when Marlon throws this brilliant flick pass and it's a really clear two-on-one. And all Sonny Bill Williams has got to do is flick the pass on and Ali Williams scores in the corner. Or he kind of drifts, holds the pass, scores himself. And instead, Williams takes it in, or Sonny Bill Williams, takes it in and is stopped like a yard short. Because when he looks up, he notices that Ali Williams has stood like half a yard in front of him. They're five metres out, less than five metres out from the line. Sonny Bill is almost over the line. Ali Williams is actually over the line. <laughs> like he's, he's basically stood on the try line in front of him. And then when Sonny Bill takes it in and doesn't score, Williams, Ali Williams, they're both called Williams. It's like t- commentating on Wales. <laughs> Ali Williams rushes in, heads straight in the side of the breakdown. He doesn't get penalised for this, but he does knock the ball loose onto the Tonga side. Vungalila then picks it up and runs 20 metres to the edge of the 22. Of course. So he completely blows the chance in two different ways. And for that, he is my dick of the day. Yeah. And I believe that brings us now to the end of our first episode of this, the Squid Rugby retrospective podcast thing. This one's been about an hour. They won't all be, some of them may be 20 minutes, some of them may be, we had to run through kind of the beginning of this game, the World Cup as well, and talk about that in general. We will be moving on to the next game chronologically, which was played the following morning, which was between Scotland and Romania. I'm really excited for this one. It was a good game. It was a very good game, and Romania really pushed Scotland. Despite Dan Park, it was a good game. <laughs> Sometimes they happen. Okay, yeah. on that note, we'll see you soon. For Scotland against Romania. Yeah. See you then. See you later. Until then, have a lovely time and enjoy yourselves. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.